So in fact, in a recent meta-analysis, they showed that these watches, depending on the watch, overestimated your energy expenditure during exercise by anywhere from about 28 to 93 percent. Wow. 93? Yeah. Wow. So if if it says you burned a thousand calories, you might have only burned like 500. Welcome to Better with Dr. Stephanie. I am your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. This show is for women just like you with a deep desire for learning, self-actualization, and becoming more of who you already are. Every week, we are going to deconstruct how to build better bodies, better minds, better relationships, better sex, and better families. I'll be giving you access to world-class thought leaders to help give you the tools to answer this question. What are the simplest things that you can do today to get better tomorrow? I am part geek, part magic, and want to share the juiciest questions, topics, and often taboo conversations that I think I've always wanted to be a part of and I wanted to be having. So let's get better together. Welcome back to Better with Dr. Stephanie. It's me, your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. And today I bring you a conversation with Lane Norton. Lane is the founder of BioLane. He has a Bachelor of Science in Biochemistry, a PhD in Nutritional Sciences, and did his dissertation under Dr. Donald Lehman, one of the foremost researchers on protein metabolism and fat loss in the world. Uh, he is also uh, has enjoyed success in bodybuilding, and powerlifting, receiving his pro card in 2006 and competing as a pro in 2010. And uh, with the highlight of his career being a heavyweight class win at the 2010 IFPA International. Now we talk about so much today. We start off with the calories in, calories out discussion. So do calories matter? Yes. And he talks about how they do. And we talk about the nuance and context uh, of energy balance, which I, th- which I think is lost a lot. Um, when we talk about hormonal balance, of course, that is absolutely important. But if weight loss or maybe more accurately stated fat loss is the goal, then we do want to be paying attention to calories. So we start off with calories and we just uh, have a great uh, discussion around the thermal effect of food. We talk about metabolic adaptation. We talk about why people may think that caloric restriction is not working for them. Some of these things may be a little hard to hear, but I think that uh, a little truth serum never hurt anybody. Uh, We talk about uh, non-exercise activity thermogenesis. We talk about basal metabolic rate. Uh, We talk about some of the factors that influence calories in and calories out. We then move our discussion to protein and maximizing muscle protein synthesis. We talk about mTOR, the mammalian target of rapamycin and other growth pathways and their mechanistic role and whether or not we want to be, we'll say, activating the pathway all the time. And we get into a little bit of the weeds in terms of whether or not, you know, mTOR when we're like, let's say lifting or doing a resistance training session, is this uh, affecting 
mTOR systemically or locally, which I think is an important distinction. We also touch on carbohydrates and I didn't get to, I got, I I had 12 pages of notes, uh, in preparation for this conversation. We got to about six of them, um, did get to fitness briefly, didn't get to as much as I wanted to with fitness, but we did talk about women and training and the ability to put on muscle, um, for women, um, and why the, you know, the two options seem to be that you're going to be sarcopenic or jacked, like nothing in, and nothing in the middle. Uh, we talk a little bit about autoregulation training around the cycle and the importance of checking in. And we don't get to, we didn't get to all the things like I wanted, as I mentioned, so I'm going to have to have them back for a part two, but we do touch on hypertrophy of the muscle and what makes an effective resistance training session with respect to hypertrophy. So we talk a little bit about time under tension, mechanical tension, metabolic stress, progressive overload, moving close to muscle failure, um, and the need for rest time and how that can modulate based on, you know, six to 10 reps as you'll, as you'll hear based on how much time you rest. Very juicy conversation. The other, uh, little deviation that we kept going on is sort of the psychosocial aspect of weight loss, the psychosocial aspect of our belief systems and how those drive behaviors. And really at the core, we want to be changing who we are so that we can embrace a new uh, personality and of course, new outcomes associated with that personality. A wonderful discussion, robust with science, get your notes out and please, without further delay, enjoy my conversation with Lane Norton. I get a lot of questions about how to ease perimenopause and menopause symptoms. And here's a really simple answer for you. Take a good mineral supplement. Your body loses a ton of minerals as you transition through perimenopause and menopause and mineral deficiencies make a lot of the common symptoms worse. For example, if you're struggling with poor sleep, fatigue, joint pain, hot flashes, or any other side effects that are wearing you down, you might think about giving Beam Minerals a try. Their full-spectrum mineral supplement contains every single mineral that you lose during perimenopause and menopause. And there is a meaningful dose here with close to 100% bioavailability. All you have to do is take a shot of liquid every morning to replenish your mineral stores and ease the symptoms that you might be experiencing. Beam Minerals just taste like water and you'll feel the difference within a few days. Head over to beamminerals.com and use the code BETTER for 20% off. Lane Norton, I'm very excited um, to welcome you to the Better Podcast. Welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. And I, uh, I reached out to you um, because I wanted to bring you on to add color to the conversations that we often have on the show uh, around nutrition and around fitness. And I think that those are kind of the two main verticals, like main buckets that we're going to draw on today, although there's a lot of overlap um, between them. And I wanted to start off because I think that you're most we'll say well known for um, talking about why calories matter. Uh, And I think that there's a lot of, if you were to only get your information, let's say from social media, I think that there's a lot of opportunity to, um, to misunderstand um, what it is that you're saying. So let's talk about, let's just start, maybe let's just actually start with a, with an explanation of what a calorie is. Um, And then we can move into this concept of energy balance, because I think that there's there's a lot of rejection, we'll say, about calories actually mattering. So yeah, take it away from there. For sure. So I think 
one of the biggest things to understand, and then maybe people actually don't get done intuitive. So we talk about calories. Calorie is literally referring to a unit of heat or energy. So, um, you know, when we talk about calories, it's not something that you can like measure under a microscope or, or anything like that. What we're talking about is the stored energy in the chemical bonds of food. And that stored energy gets liberated through the process of metabolism. Now, the problem is, is that whole process is such an esoteric thing. And there's so many aspects to metabolism that it's very easy for people to get drawn into what's very popular now is people get really focused on mechanistic based stuff. And I can appreciate that because I'm a biochemist as my undergraduate was in biochemistry. And I would get real into these different mechanisms. Well, insulin does this and this does this and this does this. So that means there's going to be this in terms of a human outcome. And what you have to realize is that all these little mechanisms, they matter. They do matter, but none of them exist in isolation. And what is happening, what you see or what the outcome is in a human and a whole human is the summation of all those thousands of mechanisms. And I've just had so many experiences in grad school where, um, you know, I had so many ideas about what would, what would happen with these different mechanisms. And then we would test it and you would find that basically nothing happened because the human body is so great at regulating itself that, you know, a lot of times these mechanisms that sound really important, they just don't really pan out in like in terms of a whole body. Now, when we're talking about calories, I think it's important for people to understand we're talking about the chemical energy stored in food. Now, how is that measured, right? It, it sounds, again, very esoteric. So what's really interesting is, I think it was in the late 1800s when this, this idea that food contained energy, and that's how, where we got energy from, started becoming more of a focus, which is actually like a really short period of time if you think about it. You know, we, we knew like we knew people could starve to death. We knew we needed food to survive. But this idea that it provided energy um, and that's what kind of, you know, powered us throughout the day, throughout our lifetimes. That's a relatively new understanding. And the idea was, well, if there's chemical energy stored in the bonds of food. Based on the first law of thermodynamics, you know, you cannot destroy energy or matter, you can only transfer it to different forms. So if we burn this food, for example, in like a bomb calimeter, we should be able to capture the energy that it that gives off. And so we did that. And that's where we got the outwater values from. Now, what was really interesting was they did some predictions based on, okay, if we feed this rodent, this certain amount, we should see a certain amount of energy output that comes out. And we can capture that in urine, fecal matter, and heat generated. Because literally, that's that's the end products of metabolism. There, you lose a little bit of energy through your fecal matter. It's, it's really not that much unless you have some kind of digestive disorder. Um, you lose some in your urine. Again, not that much. Um, and then you breathe out quite a bit uh, through respiration in terms of your end products of metabolism, which is CO2 and water. Uh, and then you also just give off some as heat. So if we look at all those you know, things, we should be able to sum that up 
and have an idea of what an energy expenditure is versus input. And it's really brilliant the way they designed it. They basically put a, a rat in a, essentially a bomb chlorometer, but um, it was in a, a closed kind of container, I want to say. And then there was ice on the outside. And basically they said, okay, based on what we're predicting, how much heat should be generated, the temperature in the ice should change this much and this much should melt. And wouldn't you know it, it was almost exactly what they predicted. So again, when, when people talk about calories don't matter, you, you, I think they're having the wrong argument. They absolutely matter because this is, this is not up for debate, right? Like if you create more body mass, you have to acquire those carbons from somewhere. <laughs> they cannot be generated out of nothing. And if you lose body mass, you have to get the, the you have to liberate those carbons from somewhere. So again, this just seems very esoteric to a lot of people. And I want to go through some of the, the, the two sides to calories in, calories out, because I think it's important to understand this. So I think one of the reasons people get really confused is they'll say, why well, in a calorie deficit, I didn't lose weight. And no, you didn't. Not in a sustained calorie deficit, at least. And there's a few reasons people don't understand this. One, it's, this is less of a problem, but it still does matter. It's hard to exactly track your calories in because food labels can have up to a 20% error. So, you know, there can be variety, but I will say that if you're, for example, if you track everything the same way every time, it really doesn't matter because even if you're off a little bit, you'll be able to be consistent, see the relative change and increase or decrease your calorie intake based on what's happening. Now, where people can get crossed up is, um, I'll never forget, we had a, um, there was this low calorie, low calorie brownie uh, company that was selling these low calorie brownies. And uh, we had a client who wasn't losing weight. She was having like two of these brownies a day. And we looked through her food diary and my wife and I are like, this is the only thing it could be. We sent them off to get tested and they were over double the calories that they claimed. So, you know, again, it's like, do you think you're violating the laws of thermodynamics? Or do you think maybe that low calorie food you're eating maybe isn't low calorie? So there's that aspect of things. And then yes, you can lose some of your fecal matter. It can be a little bit variable from person to person, but really, you're not talking about that big of a difference throughout the day across different people, maybe with like rare exceptions. So absorption seems to be pretty similar between most people. So when we talk about you have your calories in, which truly is your metabolizable energy in, because we do know some things like, for example, most insoluble fibers aren't, you know, they don't really provide caloric value. So that's not metabolizable. So it's your metabolizable energy in and then your energy out. Well, Here's where people also get crossed up. They say, well, I, you know, my, my Apple watch, it said I burned, you know, a thousand calories in my workout yesterday. And so there's no way that, you know, I wouldn't be losing weight if I was in the calorie deficit. And I always say, what do you think is more likely that, that you're defying the laws of thermodynamics or that your, your, your watch might be wrong? So in fact, in a recent meta-analysis, they showed that these watches, depending on the watch, overestimated your energy expenditure during exercise by anywhere from about 28 to 93%. Wow. So, 93? Yeah. 
Yeah. Wow. So if you, if it says you burned a thousand calories, you might've only burned like 500. But right? it's not just watches. Like it's not just the wearables. It's like even just no. the cardio machines. Like yep. you didn't burn 600 calories in 30 minutes. Absolutely. I mean, maybe you did, but like, again, like you're saying, what's more likely, what's the probability matrix here? Exactly. So that, that's a big part of it. And, um, you know, I, I think that what I will tell people is like, listen, while they're not accurate, you can still use it as a tool. First off, they're good for counting steps, which can be good to standardize your activity. Um, but like I know, for example, on average during a workout, it will say I burn about like 1,100 calories or, or 1,000 calories. Well, if I go in and one day it says I burned 1,600, I might not have burned 1,600, but I probably did burn more than I usually burn, right? So it, it can be useful for that. But in terms of an absolute number, no, no way. Um, and so people also will go online and they'll do like a, you know, BMR calculation or whatnot, and it'll tell them what calories they should eat for a calorie deficit. And then they don't lose weight and they go, well, that, you know, I'm something's wrong. Like calories in calories out doesn't work. No, maybe it should have been a calorie deficit and it just wasn't for you. Maybe your energy expenditure is lower than that's predicting, right? This is still a prediction. This is not a direct measurement. And I think people don't know that, you know, they, they really aren't, and it's no disrespect to the layperson, but they're just not equipped to understand like what is accurate versus what is a really general guess. And right? the six nuts that you had as you pass through the kitchen and like the little things, like we don't, we also don't account for, we're like, Oh, that doesn't matter. You know, just, yeah. Like, so just, I'm, I'm, I'm actually going to get to that. Cause that's actually the most powerful statistic and, and people don't like to hear it because of the accountability associated with it. Um, and then there's also the fact that, you know, weight fluctuations. So this is one that people don't think about that really crosses them up. So, I'm kind of like, I'm an athlete, I compete. So I'm a little bit anal retentive with how I do this stuff. So I actually weigh every single day uh, in the morning after I you know go to the bathroom before I eat anything. And I take the average of those weights for the week. Because if you've ever weighed yourself every day, you know that you bounce all over the place. Like a one to 2% fluctuation in body weight is completely normal. In fact, uh, today, yesterday I was traveling. Today, I'm three pounds heavier than I was yesterday. Do I think I gained three pounds of body mass, like actual tissue? No, I, I gained, it's probably exclusively water, if maybe a little body fat, whatever. Um, but people will, for example, weigh in sporadically. So they'll weigh in like first thing in the morning one time, they'll be in a calorie deficit through a week. And then they'll weigh in, you know, middle of the day on Saturday after they ate a lot, be like, oh, I'm up three pounds. See that the calorie deficit's not working. No. When we talk about a calorie deficit, yes, you can have fluctuations. But if you are, if your average body weight is not decreasing over the course of time, it's not a calorie deficit. And then you touched on it. People are horrible estimators of their energy intake. And I, I don't want people to take away from this that I think that everyone should have a food scale and take it everywhere. But if you've never had that experience, if you've never just weighed everything you put in your mouth for a week, it will blow your mind. Like if you just track all your snacks, all your stuff, you know, so I, I've had so many people who have said to me, um, you know, I, I'm just struggling to lose weight. And I, got, I, I remember one gal specifically, I'm on 1600 calories a day. 
you know, I just, I'm, 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 I'm really struggling. I said, okay, you know, do you, do you ever snack on stuff throughout the day? Yeah, a little bit, you know, so on and so forth. So I just, I said, listen, I don't want you to change anything about what you do. I want you to just go through a normal day and I just want you to throw stuff on the scale and send it to me. Okay. So send me, send me what all the weights were. I don't want you to even try and look it up. Right. Cause what happens is when people see those calories start adding up, they start changing their behavior. So when she sent it to me, she was eating 2,800 calories a day, Thought she was eating 1600. And to be honest, that's not even as bad as what the most, re- most of the research literature says. So there was a study done. I want to say it was in 1995 and they had people, uh, they, they gave them doubly labeled water, which allowed them, which basically will allow them to track their energy expenditure relatively well. And they, they were going to monitor their food intake. And they told them like, listen, we want you to report accurately. If you don't report accurately, we will know, you know, so um, the average person under report, and these were people who self-reported that they had trouble losing uh, body weight on low calories. So the average that they reported was 1200 calories. Their actual intake on average was over 2000 per day. And when they, when the researchers showed them what they were eating, they act, a lot of them actually tried to argue with the researchers about it. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that this is a really hard thing for people to get past. I think one of the reasons that calories in calories out is unpalatable for a lot of people is because there is an inherent accountability factor there. What, what people hear is you're a sloth, you're lazy, but that's not what it says. It simply says for your given energy expenditure on a daily basis, you are eating more than you require, right? That's not the same thing as necessarily being lazy or slothful, because especially with the food environment today, it is not difficult to get 2,500 calories in a day. It's not difficult at all. And so the one other thing I'll, I'll bring up, two other things I'll bring up. One, a lot of people don't realize alcohol has calories. And even if you, people go, well, I just, I just drink vodka. Yeah, well, a shot of vodka has 60 to 80 calories. So if you have five shots, like three, 400 calories like that, right? Uh, and then the other thing is people drastically change their behavior on the weekends. So there's a lot of people who are weekday dieters. They will do, you know, 12, 1500 calories throughout the week, but then they're doing 3000, 4000 on the weekends and they go, well, see, I'm in a calorie deficit, not losing weight. You got to look at it like a budget, right? So if my budget for the week is, you know, a thousand dollars and I do great, you know, Monday through Friday, I've only spent $400, but then I spend, you know, $900 on the weekend. Well, I'm still over budget. It doesn't matter that I was on budget Monday through Friday. And so that is not something that's super intuitive for a lot of people. And I think that that these different uh, aspects of calories in calories out is where a lot of people get crossed up. And the one other one is what you already kind of mentioned when we were getting ready to come on here, which is metabolic adaptation. So We basically, for people who've never heard the term, metabolic adaptation refers to as you lose body mass or even gain body mass, it just happens the opposite uh, direction. As you lose body mass, your energy expenditure decreases. Now, part of that is expected because if you're, for example, uh, 200 pounds and you lose weight down to 180 pounds, you just have less mass to carry around. So it it, it makes sense that your energy expenditure would decrease. But metabolic adaptation is the decrease in energy expenditure above which is predicted by the loss of body mass. And they've shown that on average, 
that's about 15% in terms of your BMR for people who lose a significant amount of weight. But then the other thing that doesn't account for necessarily, that's just BMR. We've also been able to show that your non-exercise activity thermogenesis, your NEAT, is very modifiable. And people who lose, I think it was up to 10% of their body weight, they can have a decrease in NEAT of up to four to 500 calories a day. Now, NEAT is your, best way to describe it is your non-purposeful movements throughout the day. So like, like right here, I'm doing this stuff with my hands, right? Like now I'm purposely doing it, but before I wasn't. Um, that would be an example of neat. Like I'm, I'm kind of fidgeting, um, you know, pacing, like that sort of like when I'm on the phone, I tend to pace a lot. That's an example of neat. Um, and, you know, people will say, well, you know, I'll just go out and, and I'll, I'll walk to get more neat. And it's like, no, you don't understand what neat is. That's, that's purposeful exercise. Neat is not something that's modifiable. And that drastically drops down while you're dieting. So, Again, you can have a situation where somebody has been dieting for, you know, a good period of time and they say, well, I'm on 1600 calories a day and I, I, my weight loss is stalled. Like, this doesn't make sense. Like, I, I should, like, this should be a calorie deficit. Well, it probably should, but if you've lost a significant amount of weight, it may not be. And they've actually shown that when they take people who have lost body weight, who are now weight reduced, and they compare them to people with comparable body composition who have never been obese that the previously obese people will have a much lower energy expenditure compared to the people who are were never obese, even though their body composition is now similar. And again, this is probably one of the reasons that it's so hard to not just lose weight, but keep it off because the drive to regain is there. Yeah. And I think just kind of building on the metabolic adaptation, I think that people tend to think we'll say overly there's linear thinking when it comes to weight loss. Like if I have a, let's say a 500 calorie, that's what we were all taught. You want to lose a pound a week at the 500 calorie deficit. You know, you do this 500 calorie deficit, then, then I should predictably and necessarily lose a pound a week forever. Right. So then when we, you know, to the point where it's, you know, when you have that stall, like that client, you were saying, I'm doing 1600 and I'm, I'm not losing any more weight. Well, that's not necessarily, that doesn't necessarily mean that things aren't still happening, but yeah. maybe there is some shift in uh, body composition and maybe you don't, you shouldn't be losing a pound a week every week for the rest of your, and you just can't do that. Like you can't lose a pound of week, a, a yeah, pound a week forever. You would starve to death on, you know, 500 well, calorie die. Yeah. Right? <laughs> exactly. yeah, so, yeah. So I think you bring up a, a excellent points. Yeah. One of the things we really try to do with uh, people who are using our app is to understand that what you want to look at is not like day to day or really even week to week. You want to look at like the course of weeks. So for example, when we were building the algorithm for our app, we actually use like a rolling weight or roll several weeks rolling average for weight, right? Because again, day to day and even week to week, there can be pretty big fluctuations in weight. But if we're looking over the course of several weeks and using those averages, usually if somebody's in a calorie deficit, we see it go down. And as you mentioned, like we have this idea that I think humans love the idea of control that, you know, we can just control everything. And the fact of the matter is like, you have so little control, you know, there's tens of thousands of metabolic processes happening in, happening in your body. And yes, we can probably control putting ourselves in the calorie deficit, but the idea that we're going to be able to like exactly calculate how much we're going to lose from day to day, like even, that would involve like trying to get the exact same amount of 
dietary fiber, the same types of fiber, the same electrolytes. I mean, basically be eating the exact same thing every day, drinking the exact same amount. And even then, who knows, there's probably changes in like barometric pressure or humidity that affect things. So, you know, really, you just want to look at the overall process and the average process. And the way I compare it a lot of times is with a financial comparisons. I just find that this is way more intuitive for people. So I tell people, think about weight loss kind of like the stock market, but in reverse, right? So we know that investing in the stock market overall is a good idea because since its inception, um, I think the average rate of return is like nine or 10% or something like that, right? But there are periods of time where it, it goes down, right? Like drastically. Like right now. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, and even day to day, like if you're if you're an investor, you know, if you're going for the long term, right? You're investing wisely. Um, it's not a good idea to really like look at the market day to day because it'll drive you insane, right? Because you're like, oh, I'm down like you know five thousand dollars today or whatever it is. You know, you just you kind of put it in, you do the work, and just trust that over time, like if you invest wisely, that you know it will grow. It's the long play. It's the long play. Yeah. And I think people with weight loss really get invested in just short-term changes. And one of the reasons that uh, actually they, they do show that people who lose weight quickly on a diet early actually tend to have better long-term outcomes. And it's nothing to do with physiology. It's really just those people buy in early because they see some weight loss. And, you know, it's kind of one of the reasons that uh, low carb, at least in the short term, has uh, better weight loss. Now, they don't show better fat loss, but because there's so much loss of body water initially, that gets people to kind of buy in. So all this is working. Um, even on the long term, it doesn't really make a difference in fat loss. If it gets people to buy in, you know, it can be a great tool. I tend to like to use like pretty aggressive, what I call fat loss sprints. I think a lot of people really screw up because they, they try to diet through periods of their life where they're just like, okay, you're working two jobs. you got three kids. Um, you're a single mom going to school and you're like trying to, you know, you're going to be at Orange Theory five times a week. Yeah. A priority, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. good luck. You know, yeah. like, um, maybe you can hold serve, whatever. Or you're somebody who has, I have actually a client right now. He's a very well-known businessman. And he travels, like, so often. And his schedule is so hectic. That what we do is pre pretty much, like, he has one week a month where he's kind of home and can, like, really prioritize this. So what we do is we go, okay, on that one week, we are going hard. We're going to get as much fat like, and we're going to try and get like two, three pounds off in a week. And then on these other weeks, we're just going to try and hold serve. We're just going to try and maintain. And while that doesn't work for everybody in terms of like being helpful for a lot of people, when they have, when they feel like, okay, if I just maintain this for these few weeks, this is a win. And then when I have time where I can prioritize it, uh, and we go aggressive. That seems to work for a lot of people. And I think a lot of it is because they see some quick weight loss, they get that buy in, and then they push the pause button when things get, you know, stressful. So no, it's, 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 it's really interesting how adherence really drives weight loss in the long term. Like if you look at the research studies, 
we, we don't, I mean, we've, I used to be somebody who I thought, you know, going to grad school, I was going to find the perfect fat loss diet, you know, and the best thing you can do physiological, I'm going to tweak all these things. And what you find is long-term, the reason people don't achieve success isn't because they didn't have the right carb to fat ratio or, you know, because they weren't timing their meals. It's because they, they're just not able to, to be consistent with it over a long period of time. And that's really what makes the difference. And I think that messaging gets lost in a lot of the dietary, like back and forth on social media. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And there's, um, I actually have to get him on the podcast at some point. There's uh, Will Wallace has like a, when you're talking, he has a meme that he's posted several times. I'm going to completely butcher it, but it's something like, you know, take this supplement or do this workout to fix your metabolism. And then it's like your metabolism. And then it has like 400 lines and circles and pathways. And it's like, if you think like this is, this is like, thank God no one entrusted me to design this system because it is far more complex and elegant in its design than I think. And I think that we're still uncovering. We still can't, we still can't really, uh, with confidence say that we know everything about, uh, metabolic adaptation and metabolism as a, I think it's one of the most complex things that, uh, that I think that the bot that we've really, uh, studied and looked at in the body as a, as a whole. It's very fast. Uh, you know, even I've changed, you know, several aspects of, you know, my mind about metabolic adaptation in, in the last 10 years. So um, you're, you're right. I, I do think like we do know the principles that work for different things. So overall, if we if we never learned anything else about nutrition, we, we actually know what we need in order to live very healthy lives it's it's simple in theory it's complicated in execution and it's it's kind of like people say well calories in calories out that's way too simple there's no there, you know there's no way and they'll pull up the chart that you just talked about like there's no way that, you know and the way i always kind of describe that is i'm like well how do you not be broke how do you how do you save money you earn more than you spend okay so why are there so many broke people because you have that knowledge. So just, you know, it's because you're not, you're not dealing with an information problem. You're dealing with a behavior problem. You're right. dealing with a habit problem. Right. Because we're not robots. People are messy. You know, they do things that don't make sense logically because we're emotional creatures. And for a lot of people, food has become emotional. Again, when I, when I first got into this, I was kind of like, I can solve the obesity crisis. Just send me clients and I'll put them on these macros and they'll lose weight. You know, it, it turns out, you know, not everybody's a robot like me. So it really like getting people to implement those behaviors is far more complex than people could possibly imagine. Yeah. And I, I, I love what you're saying because nutrition, you know, and I, I, I teach uh, other practitioners in terms of helping other women and it's like, nutrition has almost, it has more to do with human psychology and understanding how belief systems drive behaviors. Almost, that is almost more important than the nutrition itself. Like, yes, the macro split and the calories in and all that, of course, all of that matters, right? Um, but why, and, but weight loss, I think to your point is so at the end of the day, like, yes, there's a lot of complexity, but you can, you can summarize it by calories in calories out. And we all know that we want to prioritize pro protein. We want to have, you know, a digest, you know, a digestive system that 
is not slowed down to a halt. We want to have some type of movement, like structured movement program, non-structured movement program, the need that you are, that you are referring to. So it's not, and I don't mean this in a derogatory way, it's not rocket science, but to your point, the reason why we have this billion, multi-billion dollar industry is because humans are not robots, because we are complex beings with pasts and traumas and layers and, and schemas and all of these things kind of layered on top of each other. And when someone comes to you for weight loss and you said it, and I wanted to just kind of double click on it because you, you met, you said fat loss, which I think is what, you know, nobody wants to lose brain weight. No one's like, I need my bones to be less dense. Like no one's going to come to you and like, make my organs lighter lane. They, what they're talking about is reduction in adiposity. So I love that you said fat loss. I know that your book uh, is called fat loss forever because that's what people really want. It's the fat loss, uh, that people want. And like the weight, you know, I, I, one of the things that I, I have found for at least women, and I don't know if you can comment on this or not, but kind of talking about the psychological constructs a little bit, the, the scale can be in some cases triggering, but it can be a bit of a mind part of my French, but a, a mind fuck for, for a lot of women. So it's like, can we look at other measures of progress can we look at your measurements? Can you take some photos? Can you see if your jeans are fitting better? Is your libido like, what's your libido like? What's your skin look like? How's your sleep? You know, so can we look at other measures in addition to like the weight should, we should be looking at the scale, but can we layer some other measures of progress so that when the weight, so that when you don't, the 500 calorie deficit isn't leading to the pound a week, we can say, but your waist to hip measurement now, but your sleep now, but your sex drive now. Yeah, absolutely. Like at the end of the day, we care about fat loss. You know, if the scale, you know, does whatever it does, but you're decreasing your adiposity, that's what really matters. Now, what I will say is that if you're decreasing adiposity over time, you are going to see a change in the scale. Now, where that gets to be difficult is like you said, if the scale is bouncing around and people have trouble trusting this process because they don't feel like it's going to work for them. You know, I think for the most part, I will say I, I generally encourage people. So here's a few tools I'll, I'll do because the scale is the most objective kind of feedback. I do like to have that information. Now, are there other things we look at? Yes. Like we can look at, you know, body fat, but that's not always easy for people to get done. And quite frankly, body fat is actually a more volatile measurement than body weight. So, you know, people go, well, I had a DEXA done. It's like, well, did you have it done at the same time on the same machine with the same exact technician using the same standardization protocols and making sure that you ate the exact same thing the day before and the day after or the day before and drank the same amount? No. Well, then it probably wasn't that accurate because people don't realize, you know, things like DEXA, even though it's great for research, it is what's called a two compartment model. So, you know, the easiest way to gain uh, eight pounds of lean body mass is pretty quick. Uh, do a DEXA, then drink a gallon of water, get back on the DEXA. And guess what? You'll have eight pounds more lean body mass because water is lean body mass. And, and by default, you will have less body fat because a greater percentage of your weight is now lean body mass. So, again, that's an extreme example, but it's important to make the point. Uh, waist hip measurements, another one you said, the way your clothes fit and, I'll, I'll, and pictures, obviously, because at the end of the day, like how you look is important for, for most people trying to lose fat. Um, 
or you know, even if you're getting blood work done and you're seeing your your blood lipids improve, you're seeing your insulin sensitivity go up. You know, those are all great feedback measurements. Now, what I will say over time is for most people, not all, if I can get them to just buy in and be consistent to the process for a couple of weeks and get them to weigh in every day, and then they look at the averages, it actually tends to take away some of that anxiety because they go, oh, so this is actually normal. And, and then they'll go up two pounds in a day and they'll go, okay, well, that's just normal. You know, and the more times they see those fluctuations, the more they go, okay, well, this, I'm not going to freak out because I know it's probably going to go back down. You know, it doesn't mean you have to like it. It doesn't mean like nobody is on fat loss and makes up two pounds heavier. Like, Oh, awesome. You know, like that's not how it works, but when you like exposure therapy, it's almost like as 100%. You exp- yeah. Yeah. And the same thing, I go back to the investment, you know, thing, like if you're somebody who's, you know, if you don't understand investing, you don't understand that you're playing the long game here and you start seeing it go up and down, you know, it can be very, it could be very, um, very triggering for you. But if you, if you stay in long enough and you don't like freak out and pull your money out, you do it for over several years, you go, oh, okay, this works, you know, and then you stop having so much anxiety about it because you realize that like, I'm, I trust this process. Uh, the same thing that goes for, you know, weight loss. And um, one thing I have done with people, like, for example, to get that feedback, but maybe like kind of ease them into the process is there's a couple of methods you can do. The first one is if you have a supportive partner, um, you can just step on the scale, have them take a pic. I'll say, yeah, have your husband or you know whoever take a picture of the scale, send it to me and have them delete it off the phone. So you don't know what it was and there's no, you know, there's no paper trail, right? And so I still get the information and you're not having to get, you know, you can just put your head down, do the work and not have to worry about what's going on. Right. The other thing is if you don't, if you don't have a, a, um, a supportive partner, if you're, you know, single person, whatever, you can still do the same thing. Step on the scale, take a picture with your phone and just try to, you know, send it to me before you take a look at it. Now, most people, unfortunately don't have the discipline to not look at it. Um, but you know, those are a few tools, but on occasion I have had people where I've said, Hey, listen, let's just not weigh in for a couple of weeks. You know, let's just be committed to this process, put your head down, do the work. And then, you know, two, three weeks later, we'll, we'll check in and see where we're at. Right. Um, and again, like the downside to that is maybe they check in on a day where they're having a fluctuation, their body weights up and, you know, the scale, you know, it's not going to be a favorable, but usually what happens is if that does relieve some stress for them, they're able to just focus on doing the work. Um, and then, you know, usually we'll get a drop. So there's never a one size fits all approach to this. Um, you know, and I, I think you touched on something earlier that I really want to point out because again, I think people hear what I say sometimes and they think what I'm saying is, well, if you're overweight, it's your fault. I will say I, I used to have that perspective, right? I used to have the perspective that if you're, you know, if you gain too much body fat, you're just lazy, right? I no longer have that perspective. Um, I do think that there is personal responsibility, but there's also a lot of things that go into obesity. And we know, for example, people who are, who are obese or obese prone, that they have a much greater reward sensation from food than a lean person does. Um, you And there was actually uh, one thing that really blew my mind is I think they had a survey of 100 obese women and over 50% of them had some sort of sexual assault trauma in their life. 
And many of them identified that, and they said, I became big, like almost so like I wasn't, so somebody wouldn't look so at I'm me. So I'm not attractive. attractive. Yes. Or yes. I felt like I had some protection, you know, that yes. sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Or food was a coping mechanism for them, right? So it's like, yeah, obesity is a is a an energy imbalance. And yes. there's many medications also. Like I remember right. getting into, um, you know, back when I was stupid and I would get into like Instagram common wars with people. It was someone was like, would you ever hire an overweight trainer? And I would say, of course I would. I have mm. no idea what thyroid medication they're on, what, you know, what SSR, like if they're on an SSR, like, well, you know, all of these things can alter uh, metabolism in, in people. And I think that my comment was something like, you know, as long as I see that they have, that they're making, like they're working out and like, it doesn't matter to me what I, what I care about when I hire a coach is that they're going to shorten, they're going to give me my time back, that they're going to get, they're going to shorten my learning curve in an area of expertise that I am not you know, that I'm not an expert in. That's why I'm hiring them. Do I care what they look like? I mean, maybe when you think about personal training, maybe that's what you might like if they can do it for their body, but that's an N of one, you know, maybe they're dealing with some other thing that you are not privy to. Um, again, that's kind of like, maybe that's maybe an extreme example again, but, um, no, yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll take that a step further with say, what about this person? As I said, if we're going to go down that road, then just find Mr. Olympia and have him tell you what to do. Because right. obviously he must be the most knowledgeable person in the world because he has the highest ratio of lean mass to fat mass, right? Yeah. So no, and like I, doctors, like, notoriously the worst patients, the number one reason why chiropractors retire from practice is back pain because we're hunched over people all yeah. day long and we don't get our, we don't get our treatment. So it's like, does that make them a bad chiropractor? Well, I mean, maybe the behaviors, like they could have changed their behaviors, but to your point, like, well, why don't we just speak to like the one person, the one descending voice, Mr. Olympia or whoever, it doesn't mean anything. Yeah, that, it's a great point. And I think when we look at some of the best coaches in sports, actually, most of them weren't great players. It's right. very rare that a great player becomes a great coach. Yeah. Most of the best coaches were average players at best. Mm -hmm. Now, why is that? Well, usually it's because they had to study so much to milk every like ounce of skill that they had. Whereas somebody who it just comes naturally to them, you know, I've, I've seen, so I've seen this as a, as a competitive power lifter. Um, I have pretty long legs and squats were something that took a lot of time and honing of a craft in order for me to get comfortable with. Mm. And I can remember being in the gym in high school and you know, I, would, I would kind of squat like, you know, leaning forward. And this guy who was like five, six with femurs about this long was like, well, just squat more upright. And it's like, dude, I like the bar has to stay over my midfoot and my femurs are this long. Like, I have to lean forward. There's nothing else I can do here, right? Give me all the dorsal flexion you want. I'm still going to lean forward. But for people with, you know, it just comes naturally to them. They just kind of, they don't really know how to coach you because they've never really had to really work themselves into figuring that sort of thing out. So you're absolutely right. A lot of times the best coaches are actually people who weren't even that good at whatever they were trying to do. In fact, um, Every powerlifting coach I've ever had, I have been much stronger than all of them, right? So why why wasn't I just coaching them? Well, 
because they know what they're doing. And I'm not an idiot, but especially when it comes to my own progress, I'm an idiot, like most people, because it's so easy for us to tell somebody, hey, you should do this, 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 this. My wife and I talk about this all the time because she has a master's in dietetics. Well, one of the phrases I'll use a lot with her is, what would you tell yourself right now? And so she's usually looking like, you know, but <laughs> Damn it's, it. so, it's so true, yeah. right? Like, because as individuals, we are subject to our own emotional and, and biases where it is nice to have that kind of outside perspective of somebody who's not emotionally invested. Yeah. I, all coaches need coaches. I always have people that are coaching always all the time, because I, just, as you said, I used to do this in practice all the time. And when I was in a physical practice, like, you know what you need to do? You need to rehab. You know what you need to do? You need to meditate. Meanwhile, all the time, I needed to do those things as well. I needed to be doing my rehab. I need to be doing my meditation, et cetera. Um, I want to, I want to come back to, uh, protein and car- I, like, this is such a juicy conversation, but I want to also, uh, um, talk about protein and carbohydrates to, um, and I'm thinking this might bridge our discussion into fitness landia. Um, cause I think at least for sure with carbohydrates, but also with protein, at least on a weekly basis, I'm having someone say, but I'm concerned uh, if I have a high protein diet, because there's certain uh, protocols that I like uh, as, um, and I'll kind of, you know, state my biases. I do like a low uh, carbohydrate diet initially as a therapeutic intervention. And then I want you to get off of that. And then we, I kind of sort of move people typically to a higher protein, higher carbohydrate uh, composition. And then I talk about cycling for women as well, which we might get to today. Um, but the protein piece is what about my kidneys? And the carb piece is, aren't I going to get fat? Like you put me on this like ketogenic diet initially, and now I'm going to start eating carbs again. Aren't I going to get fat? So let's start with protein. Um, because I think people get it wrong. And I want to talk about it in the context of muscle protein synthesis. Um, I know this is, this was part of your, uh, studying, uh, when you were doing your, your degree, how much protein, so my first question, then we can kind of unpack it a little bit. Uh, how much protein, uh, do we need to maximize muscle protein synthesis and specifically the leucine content that we need in order to be able to achieve that? So great question. I'm really glad, glad you added the context of to maximize muscle protein synthesis, because the word need gets thrown around a lot. And I'll always say, we only need like 50 grams a day, but, you know, need means your bare essential minimum, right? So, you know, what is the context? If we're talking about what's useful for health and, you know, muscle mass, that's a very different question than what we need to just exist. So this is actually right up the alley of what I did. Now, most of my research was in rodents, but it was later validated in humans. What we see is that, one, you touched on it leucine content of the diet tends to be the most uh, direct predictor of the muscle protein synthetic response to a meal. So in humans, it's about two to three grams of leucine in a meal will maximize muscle protein synthesis. Now it probably depends on various factors like genetics, your pre your existing lean body mass, uh, and possibly some other factors that we haven't identified. Age. Yeah. Yeah. Age. Yes. Yeah. There is some anabolic resistance as you age where 
you need a comparably larger amount of leucine to get the same anabolic response as some of these young. So that's a great point. Uh, but for most people, you know, three grams is going to do it. So what does that look like in terms of protein sources? Well, if we're talking about something like whey protein, which can be, you know, up to like a 12% leucine, you know, 20, 25 grams might do the trick. But if we're talking about something like uh, wheat gluten, you know, which most people don't supplement with, but let's just, let's, well, actually collagen, let's take collagen. Let's say, is, let's use collagen. Yes. Yeah, good. That's mm-hmm. a very, very poor source of leucine. I, I want to say it's under 5% leucine. So you might be looking at like 60, 70 grams of collagen to, to maximize muscle protein synthesis. Now there's some evidence that collagen may have some other benefits, but I'll tell people in terms of anabolism, terrible for muscle protein synthesis. Then if you look at things like, you know, like wheat, I kind of brought up, that's about 7% leucine. So you need like, you know, 30, 40 grams, um, you know, soy is about 8% tends to be one of the better sources of like vegan, like protein, uh, that's about 8%. You know, most meats are like eight, eight and a half percent. And then eggs are nine weighs like 11 or 12. So now that being said, and I want to really point that out, that doesn't mean that you can't get enough protein from some of these lower quality sources to maximize muscle protein synthesis. You just need more of it to do so. So again, you know, I'll tell people, for the most part, if you're getting a high amount of protein on a daily basis, I wouldn't get too wrapped up in like, well, I've got to have whey protein at every single meal. And, you know, you know, like, like if you're eating, you know, around that two grams per kilogram of body weight, you're going to be fine for the most part. Um, the one caveat I'll say is if you're somebody who's like a complete vegan, you're probably going to have to supplement with some isolated protein source because for a couple of different reasons. One, we've already kind of discussed like vegan sources of, of protein are lower in leucine. So if you want to maximize anabolism, it's going to be tough. Sodium is an essential nutrient involved in the maintenance of normal cellular balance, the regulation of fluid and electrolytes, and your blood pressure. Start your morning right with a refreshing salty tonic of LMNT. It's spring season now, which means I will be enjoying watermelon or grapefruit salt on ice, and it is a fabulous way to balance stress hormones and make sure that I am maximizing my muscle gains. LMNT also has a no questions asked refund policy. Try watermelon or any flavor that you want, and if you don't like it, they will refund your money no questions asked, and you don't even need to return the box. Head over to drinklmnt.com forward slash Dr. Estima. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And you will get a free LMNT sample pack with any purchase. Then the other factor to that is usually that plant protein is bound up with fiber and is less digestible and bioavailable. So not only is the lower amount of leucine, you're getting less of it. There's also some data that suggests the liver tends to sequester uh, plant protein a little bit more and like not as much of it reaches the bloodstream compared to animal protein. Um, And then the other problem becomes you're getting usually a pretty large amount of carbohydrate or fat along with that protein source uh, in, in terms of an intact protein. Now, again, I'm not trying to dog on vegan diets because you can build plenty of muscle on a vegan diet, but for most people, that's usually going to look like supplementing with some kind of isolated protein powder. 
Um, so as long as somebody's okay with that, I'll tell them, you know, you can, you know, build muscle or, or, you know, build a lot of muscle on a vegan diet. It just takes a little bit more planning and a little bit more mindfulness in terms of how you're doing it. And caloric, like you're going to, by definition, be taking in more calories as well. It, it can be as, you know, like I said, if you want to keep the calories down, you're probably going to have to use quite a bit of an isolated protein, you know, just to get into like a soy isolate or, or something like that. So, um, you know, it is possible to do, but obviously like, you know, consuming animal products makes it much easier. But if somebody's like a pescatarian or a lacto ovo, you know, like that's very easy because all of those are very high quality protein sources. Yeah. Yeah. And I, like, I've, I've always, I've always asked that. What about vegetarians and vegans? Like you can totally get there with plants, but you just have to, you have to be mindful of the calories, especially yes. if, if, you know, in the context of our just previous conversation around calories in cal- calories out, if you're looking for recomping, if you're looking to increase your muscle mass, your skeletal, like your muscle mass specifically, and also reduce adiposity, then the calories there are going to get a little, maybe a little, potentially a little messy anyway. Yeah. And you did yeah. bring up, um, you know, wasn't protein going to harm my kidneys? So I yeah. want to be very, very clear on this. There is zero, none, zilch, no evidence that high protein diets harm a healthy kidney. Right. So there was actually a recent meta-analysis of randomized control trials by Dr. Stuart Phillips, who's probably the foremost expert in protein metabolism in the world, and just showed that there's just no evidence to support that claim. Now, Where this came from is the idea is, well, you know, protein, excess protein uh, has a nitrogen component and you have to eliminate that because uh, ammonia is toxic in the blood. So now you don't have ammonia just floating around in the blood. Your, Your body converts it to urea. But then the thought was, well, that urea has to be eliminated uh, through the kidneys. And so that must put strain on the kidneys. Well, now we know that that's just that, that doesn't appear to be the case. Um, And even I will say the research is pretty muddy about whether or not low protein diets actually help delay kidney disease too. There was a a recent um, cohort study. I think they were looking at um, all mortality rates in people with different like intakes of protein uh, who were in uh, different stages of renal failure and they just didn't really see much, if any, of a protective effect of low-protein diets. Now, full disclosure, I'm not a renal expert. Uh, I'm not saying for people to go out and eat a high-protein diet if they have kidney disease. What I will say is the evidence is much more muddy than people tend to make it out to be. Yeah, and that um, that comes to the the other thing that I'm asked about is is growth pathways and mammalian target of rapamycin. And, you know, when we look at some of the blue zones, uh, you know, Greece and Italy and Japan and all these places, they're all eating low protein diets and they have a higher concentration of, let's say, centenarians and super centenarians than, you know, uh, areas of the world that have higher protein uh, consumption. Um, and I have some strong thoughts on this, but I'll refrain. Actually, I'll just refrain from it completely. I want to hear what your thinking is on that in terms of um, should we try or should we be trying to suppress growth pathways as we age? And is, and maybe this is like more of a specific question, but when we're consuming protein, let's say, or maybe even resistance training, is the mTOR systemic 
Is it, is, it, is it a systemic response that we get mTOR everywhere, like every cell, everything? Or is it, is it, is it tissue specific? Great questions. Um, and so this has become a very contentious topic recently. So the first thing I want to point out is we're talking about a mechanism, mTOR activation, and we're trying to link that to longevity, right? Right. And so that's always very dangerous because I could develop a mechanism for literally any macronutrient as to why it's going to kill you early, right? So if we look at carbohydrate, well, carbohydrate raise insulin. That activates, you know, IRS-1, that activates the insulin signaling pathway, which has been shown to do this and inflammation and all that kind of stuff. If we talk about fats, well, that reduces flow-mediated dilation and like all these like different, like different mechanisms for heart attacks and heart disease. And so I think we really have to step back and, and think about this from a holistic perspective. And now we talk about blue zones or whatnot. Yeah, that, that, that's, it's interesting, but I think people don't understand that correlation is not causation. Those cultures also have way different lifestyles than the westernized part of the world, or at least our part of the world, the standard American diet. There is a lot more things than just protein. And really, when we look at the difference in protein, yeah, there's high protein, but the absolute difference really isn't that much. You know, we're talking about like, like 20, 30 grams a day. It is not that much. Uh, I, I don't like to make strong statements, but if 20 or 30 grams of protein a day is what's causing the difference between, you know, people living to 100 versus 70, I'll eat my shoe. I just don't. I just don't think that's it. Um, I think there's a lot of other confounding variables there. Now, with regard to mTOR specifically, first thing is people look at a mechanism in the short term and try to equate that to what's going to happen in the long term. And that is really, really, really stupid. And, and, a lot of scientists even make this mistake, which drives me absolutely nuts. So I'm going to give you an example of why I just do not put much stock in acute changes in signaling. So if I told you I was going to have you do something, Stephanie, that's going to increase your inflammatory markers, increase your reactive oxygen species, increase your heart rate and your blood pressure, what would you say to that? I, I think I know where you're going, but I would say no thanks. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah, that's what exercise does, right? Yeah. <laughs> so it's like exercise does that in the short term, right? And also, by the way, like if you're worried about protein, uh, resistance training activates mTOR way more than protein and for a way longer duration. So where are all these people dropping dead who are, you know, I mean, we have studies on mortality that shows that people who resistance train live longer. Uh, and then after, actually after age 65, if you look at all cause mortality after age 65, it is highly correlated to the amount of lean body mass you have. Um, so, and grip strength, actually, like if they look at grip strength, there's a very high associate. It's actually one of lean body mass and grip strength are two of the strongest predictors of uh, longevity after age 65. So again, where does this, is it suddenly after age 65 that protein becomes good, but before that, like it's, it's bad. Like, so 
again, this idea that like, well, you turn on this mTOR signal and that's just, you know, it's, it's activating this growth pathway. There is a big difference between a controlled dose of a stressor that has an acute response versus chronic low-level dysregulated signaling, right? So let's take inflammation, for example. And I'm just doing this parallel because a lot of people understand this. There's a lot of things that increase inflammatory markers in the short term that don't make that that actually may reduce them in the long term or don't affect them, exercise being one of them, right? And exercise actually elevates inflammatory markers by quite a bit. Now, what, what is what's considered an inflammatory state? It's actually a really modest rise in, in inflammatory markers relative to normal, but it's sustained. It's like that all the time at baseline. And so you get this chronic dysregulated signal. Same thing with insulin resistance. You have this chronic dysregulated signal. But again, I mean, going back to insulin resistance, there was a people worried about this. Like we've got people who are, you know, freaking out wearing continuous glucose monitors. They say, oh, I ate this and look at what happened to my, my blood glucose. There, there was a study done, I can't remember the lab, so I apologize in advance, but they looked at, basically they want to answer the question, did your meal response of insulin predict long-term insulin sensitivity? And they found that basically there was very little association. And really that's because long-term insulin resistance is typically because of excess adiposity. Now there are rare exceptions to that, but it's typically from excess adiposity and low activity. So how can that be true? Well, it's because there's a big difference between an acute response and a long-term dysregulated signal. And so what I will say is, you know, if you look at some of these people who are recommending low protein diet, well, if you're recommending a low protein diet, you have to fill those calories with something else, unless you're just talking about doing a very low calorie diet indefinitely. Okay. Well, are you going to fill them with fat? Okay. Well, fat reduces flow mediated dilation. And so these other measures that like are supposed to predict like some of these negative things. Okay, you're gonna fill it with carbohydrate. All right, well now you're talking about increasing insulin, which, you know, short-term has, you know, shows all these things. And it's like, if you look at the healthy populations of the earth, what do they tend to have in common? They tend to be much more active. They tend to not eat a ton of processed food. They tend to not overeat calories, but you can find, every different variety of dietary protocol. I mean, a Mediterranean diet has been shown to be one of the healthiest diets in terms of mortality and cardiovascular disease out there. And it's a relatively high protein diet, right? So does that mean that people in the Mediterranean areas have like some genetic thing that just protects them against protein? Or is it that the one commonality between a lot of these diets or, or uh, populations of people who live longer it's just they live overall more healthy lifestyles. Right. And then the psychosocial with like all those Italians and Greeks and like they're sitting down for dinner with the whole family, you know, like they're speak, they're speaking to, or maybe there's feuds, family feuds, whatever, but like I have Italians, <laughs> I, my, my husband is Italian. My ex-husband is Greek. So I kind of know the, the cultural, let's say, uh, workings of them. And so there's, there's a really tight knit community, like family, you can't also yeah. discount family and community and being around other people and what that does to regulate, let's say just 
you know, your nervous system and your sympathetic and parasympathetic responses, right? And again, and then you layer on the metabolism and then the the slow dwindling of the food over many hours. And like, instead of like, just like, you know, shoveling it in on your, you know, as you're trying to get to soccer practice. And that's kind of, <laughs> that's more a, a glimpse into my life than anything, but like there's, there's differences in the way that they eat as well. And the way they live, right? Yeah. So, yeah. I think, you know, I tell people, I think it's, I have six things. Like if you want to, if you want to live long, healthy, well, listen, you could do everything right and get hit by a bus tomorrow, right? Like that's not, Or you could do everything right. And maybe right. you've got the BRCA gene and you're just going to get cancer. You know what I mean? Like, honestly, like this is a kind of a side rant, but one of the things that makes me sick is when people get diagnosed with cancer, it's like anyone around them or invariably somebody around them like tries to do the math of, okay, well, why did they get, oh, well, they did this thing and they did that. It's like, I despise victim blame. Yes. Are there some people who do things that raise their risk for cancer, like smoking or, you know, eating too much food? Yeah, of course. But like people who are like, oh yeah, well, they drank Diet Coke. So, you know, that's why they got, it's like, just stop. Um, But if you want to, you know, really. And it's an oversimplification. Again, it's an oversimplification of the process. Yeah. So I think I tell people, I worry about the big stuff first, right? So to me, there's, I think it's six things I usually say. We'll see if I can remember them all. Uh, Exercise, be active. Don't eat like an asshole. That's me being kind of abrasive, but, you know, don't eat too many calories overall. Uh, Get enough sleep. Don't smoke. Limit your stress. And don't drink too much alcohol. If you do those six things and and, uh, don't drink too much alcohol and or drugs, Um, if you do those six things, you're doing better than 99.5% of the population. Like 99.5% of the population, I would bet, cannot say that they do all those six things well. But that's not really sexy. It's not like, oh, we'll just restrict your feeding window to two hours. And that's going to do all these little, you know, things and mechanisms and whatnot. And as attractive as that is, because I think people like to believe that there's like a magic hack or whatnot, it just boils down to the big bricks. It's it's kind of like what you were saying before with uh, with the with the finance example. It's like you know I, I remember many paths to Rome. Yeah, there's many, there's many ways to do it, and it's about playing the long game. It's not about doing these little short. And I I, I actually. I, I don't, I'm a bit of a word nerd, so I don't like the word hack because if you were to hire a hack, you know, if you were to hire a surgical hack, like you would never want someone to be a hack in your electrical system in your home. Or if someone was performing heart surgery, you wouldn't want them to be a hack. This implies poor work that they're not dedicated to excellence and they're looking for shortcuts. And I think that, um, you know, in the world of Amazon Prime and, and Uber Eats, like I think that we have become accustomed to this like immediate gratification. Like my body should show up next week. If I've had 10 salads this week, I should get it next week. I should be where I where I want to be um, or I should be able to order whatever food and I'm going to look, you know. So I think that there's um, we have to unhitch, I think. And you, I, I knew that we were always going to kind of come back to this, but I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to pull it in. Um, 
but we, we have to unhitch ourselves from this instant gratification because, you know, to grow muscle, like I remember competing, uh, I was a figure competitor when I was, I was a brief stint. I was in New York city and did the NPC, uh, figure, uh, like I wanted muscle, man. Like I, all I wanted was to put more plates on that damn leg press. And it was so hard and it was, it took so long and it, it, it's still like I've been lifting weights for forever. And like the measly little gains that I, you know, like I would say that I, I'm a decent, I have a decent squat. I have a decent hip thrust, all that, but I've worked for it. Like I've worked and I've worked and it's been years and years and years. It hasn't. And maybe that's just a parable for life, at least for me in my constitution, but anything that I've ever had that has been worth having has taken a lot of work. My degrees, my business, my muscle mass, all the things it's, it's taken a lot longer than most people want to, to, that would like to admit anyway. And I think this wraps up in the conversation of weight loss because I get it all the time. People are ambivalent about change, right? Like they want, they want the change. They're like, I need, I know I need to, like, I, I want to feel good in my skin. I want to lose this, this fat. And so they have these sort of positive feelings about that, but then they're ambivalent about the change, right? Like there's these like belief systems and these sort of rackets that go on in their head about why they can't change who they are, you know, why it hasn't worked for them. What will be different this time? All these different things that are like bouncing around like tennis balls in their head. So. I was speaking uh, with Ethan Suplee. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he's a Hollywood actor. He, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Remember the Titans. I probably, I've heard of the title. I don't know. I, so but I he, he's, yeah. he's been in a lot of movies. He was very obese. So he was over 500 pounds. Hmm. And now he looks like a superhero. He's like 220 and very well built. Hmm. And he has a saying, so he has a podcast called American Glutton that I've been on. And I really like what he says, because he's done all the fad diets, he's done everything. And he talked about what finally really made him have long-term change. And it really boils down to, he had to become a different person. Literally, yes. Yes. most people want the change, they want the outcome, but they wanna drag their old habits and behaviors behind them. And you can't, you can't, you, you have to, if you talk to somebody who has been an alcoholic, they will, and they, they now are sober. They will tell you that they are a different person. Now they just put it in their mind. I am not this person anymore because you can't hang out with the same friends. You have, you can't have the same belief systems. You can't have the same habits. You got to totally change the way you do everything. Right. And the same thing went for food. And so Ethan has a saying, um, he'll post a picture of himself in the gym and he said, and he says, I killed my clone today. So when he says that he's talking about, the old him, right? So he had to reinvent who he was. And there was a, um, a uh, systematic review published by a researcher named Marie Spreckley out of the UK, fantastic systematic review. So what she did was interview people who had either had success with long-term weight loss and maintenance or had not. And then she identified like the major um, positive reinforcers and the major negative reinforcers. And one of the things that kept coming up that I never considered until I read that paper was so many people who lost weight and kept it off said they had to establish a new identity. And I never even thought of it that way. And, but it makes sense. You just put it in your mind. This is what I do. So I'll, I'll be uh, accountable and talk about something that I did uh, like a month ago. 
Um, so I grew up in a home where my parents were, were, they loved me, but they were yellers. Like when they got upset, they would yell. Uh, and so that's who I was. If I got upset, I'd raise my voice. I would yell. And I'm ashamed to say I've yelled at my kids many times. Uh, and I was speaking with my uh, friend, John Deloney, who's a mental health expert. And he said, and uh, one of the posts he put up, he said, yelling is a form of abuse. And uh, he had said, people ask me how to stop yelling at someone. How do you stop hitting someone? You just decide this isn't who I am. And so like that really like, whoa, whoa. And, you know, I had all those feelings like you had said, well, I can't change. This is like, this is, you know, I can't change it. And then I realized you just put it in your mind. I'm not this person anymore. And so I'm, I'm happy to say that like, oh, you know, since then I have not yelled. I, sorry. I yelled one time, but it was not at anybody. It was out of frustration because I was trying to put together a, a dining room table. <laughs> so I think that would make anybody yell. But uh, no, it's just, it's about you establish that different identity. And you just decide that's who you are. And I, I'll talk about this with exercise. I tell people, I had somebody ask me the other day, man, how are you so motivated all the time? I said, well, the key is I'm not motivated all the time. In fact, I can't tell you how many times I go to the gym and go, yep, don't really want to be here. Um, but I've made it part of who I am. It's, it's not a question of whether or not I'm going. I am going because it's part of who I am and what I do. Just like I brush my teeth every day because it's part of what I do. I don't brush my teeth because I'm motivated to brush my teeth. I brush my teeth because I know if I don't over time, they're going to look like crap and they're going to feel like crap. And I'm going to spend a lot of money getting them fixed. Same thing applies to your body, right? You don't take care of it. It's going to go to crap and you're going to spend a lot of money trying to fix it. So I think if I could get people to take one thing away, it would be really think about like, who is the person you want to be when it comes to your health or body composition, whatever it is. And then think about what do you think that person's habits and behaviors look like? I'm not saying you got to be perfect straight away, but maybe you start incorporating some of those habits and behaviors and it's not going to feel good. Change never feels good, even if it's a positive change. But again, so many people, and Ethan talked about this, he's like, I'd go on a juice diet or all liquid diet or whatever it was, did it for 90 days and I lost 90 pounds in 90 days. And then when I went back to doing what I did before, I gained it all back, you know, because you, you haven't established a new identity. You've just, you've done a hack, right? And uh, we use the financial comparisons. And I think, you know, it's a great point that like people out here in like, so the pyramid schemes, the, the buy this crypto, the, you know, flip this, you know, no money down, you no, know, get the government to pay for whatever. It's like, don't you think if it was that easy that just everybody would do it, you know? And the fact of the matter is like, I think people intuitively know that at the end of the day, it's going to take hard work, but maybe they don't know it takes a new identity, right? So you have to, you have to put it in your mind. This is who I am. And this is what I do. And here are the habits and behaviors that that looks like. I love that. Yeah. What you're essentially saying is you're moving the outcome goal to more behavioral goals. Like for example, the weight loss might be the overall or fat loss might be the overall outcome that you want, but what are the behaviors that feed into that? That means that I go to the gym four or five days a week. That means that I prioritize my sleep, et cetera, et cetera. And then those are the metrics that we measure over time. Yeah. And I mean, again, 
it's like people say, well, I, I want to change, but then, well, I want to, I still want to go out and drink with my friends every night. I, I want to, you know, scroll, I want to watch Netflix for eight hours. And, you know, now I, I want to back off that real quick though, because, you know, people say everything's a choice. Yeah, I guess you could make that. I was like thinking about this the other day. It's going to be really funny. But it's like, is it a choice that like, if I go to the bathroom, I zip my pants back up? Yeah, I guess it's a choice, but not really because it's just an automatic movement. You know what I mean? Like it's just something you do because you've gotten so used to yeah. doing it. Yeah. Um, so is everything a choice? Eh, kind of. I would say everything's a decision. But some of those decisions are unconscious decisions. And I think a lot of people are really on autopilot, you know, because we have so you have so much. And, and to be to be frank, you have to be on autopilot for some of the stuff in your life, because if you didn't, you would go insane, you know, because you'd have so much stuff to think about. So really, it's about, OK, what are the things I want to modify? And now if I want to modify it, this is what I have to prioritize being mindful about. And I think that's a different conversation, but that's why habits and behaviors are so important because then the stuff that you are prioritizing can eventually become something that you don't even think about, right? So like um, weighing food, for example. Now I don't freak out. Like if I can't take a food scale with me or whatever, I, I'm good enough at estimating. But like if I'm home and I'm making food, I'll weigh it out and then I'll put it in my app and then I'll go on my merry way. And people go, oh, doesn't that bother you? I'm like, not really. I've just done it for so long. Takes well, you've like moved from like conscious. How does it go? I always mess it up. It's like conscious incompetence to, and then you move all the way down the thing to uh, unconscious competence. Yeah. 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 No, that's exactly right. And I think that whatever that looks like for you as an individual, I'll, I'll, I'll bring one more little factoid into this. So there was a, a recent um, meta-analysis looking at like 14 different popular diets. And these ranged all the way from like low carb to low fat and everything in between. And they looked at, you know, fat loss, they looked at adherence, and they really found like no difference on the whole between any of these diets. And the researchers concluded that people should do the diet that they prefer because maybe that will help them with adherence. And so what I'll always say is if weight loss is the goal, you are going to have to have some form of restriction. Now, you can choose the form, you should, you can and should choose the form of restriction that feels the least restrictive for you. But keep in mind that it's probably different for everyone. So I'll give an example. So I, I am somebody who's known for flexible dieting. I count macros and I kind of fill in, you know, I try to eat mostly healthy, but I fill in with some fun foods here and there. And I mean, you look at my blood markers and health markers. I mean, I'm 40 now and I'm, I think by most metrics in really good shape and, and very healthy. Um, but I felt like when I started doing that, I'm like, wow, I can kind of eat whatever I want. And I just got to stay within these numbers. That's, that's so easy. I'm going to solve the obesity crisis because everybody will be like me. No, dumb, dumb. Not everybody's like you. Right. So some people, and I've heard so many people say like intermittent fasting, like the idea of like, you know, so only eating in a certain window, that would kill my soul. But there are some people who say I did intermittent fasting or OMAD or whatever it is. And it felt like I wasn't even dieting. And same thing. You hear that for the ketogenic diet, you hear it for plant-based, whatever. I think the point is whatever you find that feels 
basically like it's not a diet, it's probably what you should do. Like don't, don't go for the most restrictive thing or the thing that feels the hardest. Go for the thing that feels the easiest that you can work into your lifestyle. We always talk about like, well, you need to make it a lifestyle. And everybody says that. And then nobody actually gives like practical ways to make it a lifestyle, right? So what I'll say is like, try different things. Find out what feels easy. And keep in mind, like what feels easy in one season might be hard another season. And maybe, you know, change things up over time. But I think it's also important to understand why these things are working and why these different diets work is they impose a negative energy balance or calorie deficit. Now you get to choose how you create that calorie deficit. And again, whatever feels least restrictive for you is probably where you should start. I love it. I want to do a slight hard left because <laughs> yeah. I want to make sure I love every, I, I feel like I, I could talk to you for many more hours um, on some of the psychosocial and the psychology around what it takes to lose weight and keep it off. Oh yeah, I we also, haven't really even touched it. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. And I'm looking at the time and I'm like, oh my God, we're, you know, I'm, I, I want to respect your time as well, but I, I want to make sure that, and I, I, if you're okay with it, I, I want to just pre-invite you to the, I think we need to do a part two because there's no way we're going to get to everything I've prepared today. Sure. Um, so I just, I did want to be fair. I'm kind of long winded, so it's all right. No, I love it. I love it. Cause it gives context, right? Like it's, it's so much better than like an Instagram, uh, soundbite or even, you know, sometimes when I'm writing things on Instagram, I'm like, God, I'm like always cut off by the limit. And as I have so much more to say, there's only so many times you can post things in the comments as, as a further, you know, for further clarification. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about fitness, obviously very well known. You and your wife are, you know, very well known for, uh, your, we'll say, um, knowledge and experience in bodybuilding, uh, for men and women. Um, and I wanted to talk, uh, I wanted to at least, uh, touch on the myths for training for women. Um, I've had Sal, uh, Stefano on the show. Uh, we've talked about this. I've had many experts. I've had my coach on the show, uh, to talk about, uh, some of these myths and I, as someone who talks about, uh, weightlifting because it's been, I mean, it's been one of the, you know, more consistent, I'll say healing forces, let's say in my life, not, I mean, at first, well, I'll just like, I got into it cause I want to look good like everyone else, but it's really given me so much. It's given me mental grit, resilience, self-acceptance, all the things I, I was always searching for elsewhere. I got it, you know, with, with the, with the weights. Um, but the thing that I always, I still bump several times a week, several times a week, aren't I going to get bulky? Aren't I, aren't I going to put on too much if I start lifting? Cause I'm always advocating for, uh, well, I'll say heavy lifts always. And then the way that you do it in the set, you know, and I'll, I'll talk about kind of different, uh, we'll say hormonal compositions of a, a woman's menstrual cycle when she's in her, uh, reproductive years. But I always want women lifting heavy to the point where they are coming close to fatigue, muscle fatigue. Um, and you can do that in a five rep set, you can do that in a 30 rep set. So, and I kind of oscillate uh, all over the place with that, but can you speak to this myth that perseverates? I don't know why and how that women are going to look like the Hulk if they start lifting weights. Yeah. That's like saying, no, I really don't want to start driving because I'm afraid I might end up being a NASCAR driver. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So as someone who has spent their entire adult life trying to get too jacked 
And basically, in if I was in a suit, you'd say, "Oh, yeah, that guy's fit." You know, I like I like muscle looks good. Are there some like my wife is when she was at her peak of muscularity, she's kind of dialed it back a little bit. But when she was at her peak, and she's a lifetime drug-free athlete, I mean, she was about as muscular as it gets for a woman. And still, when she was in the gym, she'd have women come up to her, oh my God, you look so fit. You know, what, what do you do? Do you do PX90, you know, or whatever it is, or CrossFit? And she's like, no, nah, I squat, deadlift, hip thrust heavy, you know, you know, XYZ. Because for the most part, muscle looks good. It's body fat that doesn't look good. Now, are there select women who can get really muscular? Yes, but again, that's like worrying about going outside because you're going to get struck by lightning. Well, and, you'd know oh, if you were that woman. You'd know if right. you were that woman. Yeah. Well, yeah. and the thing is, like, it's not difficult. Muscle is not difficult to lose. So if you start getting too muscular, just stop training as much. <laughs> it's, it's really not difficult. Um, so, yeah, I think that this is this is just one of those. I read a quote one time and it might tick a few people off, but I really like it. It's uh, women lifting heavy is feared by two types of people, men who fear women and women who fear work. And, you know, I think that resistance training actually for women is an absolute game changer. Like you will see women who are just like, come into so much confidence. Like I always joke, my wife loves to take souls in the gym. And so what I mean by that is she, if she's deadlifting, she's looking down the line at all the men that she's deadlifted more than and she's like, yeah, got you, got you. <laughs> but like not in a nasty way. She's just like motivated. No, but in an empowered way. It's, yes. it's, yeah. It's like, I am strong. There's something beautiful yeah. about feeling strong. I said this to Sal when he was here. I said, like, I'm totally going to, people are going to write in and be like, I can't believe you said this, but I, I, Sometimes like my partner and I will, will, you know, we're, we're going for a walk, whatever. Um, we'll go for a dinner and then we like to go for walks after our dinners and for going out and we'll be walking and I'll be like, I could take that guy. Okay. Maybe that guy's a little taller than me, <laughs> but if we were in an alley, it wouldn't be my wallet that was getting taken. Like I wouldn't worry about it. Right. And uh -huh. I think that, and I don't say it in a derogatory, I'm not trying to be derogatory. I'm trying to say that I feel strong in my body. I feel like I could, if it can, if we're coming, going to the extreme, I had to defend myself. Like I could take someone, I can pull up my body weight like eight times unassisted. You know, I can squat. It's like a decent squat, 195. Like, I feel like that's a good amount for a woman. And, yeah. you know, and my, my hip thrust is like easily double that, you know? So I think yeah. that, um, I think that, um, it's wonderful to put in the work because there's nothing, and, you know, and I, I said this to Sal, like there's no other game. Like there's, you know, and I get a lot of women in perimenopause that are like, listen, Steph, it's not working. The things I did like now when I'm 45, they're not working the same way that they did when they were 25. So age is always like kind of top of mind, but we also want to be thinking about how can you put on as much skeletal muscle now in arguably a more anabolic environment where we have estrogen and testosterone still cycling so that, and then continue to do that after menopause in this postmenopausal kind of 
time so that you were saying the grip strength, the ability to get off the floor unassisted, you know, all like the, 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 um, like I've seen images, I'm sure you've seen them as well. These sarcopenic let like these femurs with this fatty infiltration of like the glute and the quad. And it's like, I will never, I'm never, I never want to, I never want to get there. Yeah. So I think the first thing I said is there's actually a recent study that came out that showed that postmenopausal women were able to gain just as much muscle as premenopausal women as a percentage of their starting lean body mass. So the 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 rub being that at postmenopausal they had a little bit less lean body mass to start with. So the absolute amount of lean body mass they put on was a little bit less than people who were young, but they were still able to add significant lean body mass. And that actually, interestingly, right across the street from where I did my PhD was the uh, kinesiology department at University of Illinois. And when I was there, they were doing a study where they took frail elderly people who could barely, like barely stand up off a chair. And they started them out with basically just high box sits, right? So they would like just go down a few inches, touch a box and come back up. And then they gradually lowered the box. They got to the point where some of these people were actually holding weights and doing this um, and going down to basically a parallel box. And they were able to show significant muscle hypertrophy as like, and we're talking about people over age of 75. It is never too late to start this stuff. In fact, if you haven't, now's the best time that it's ever been. And um, the, the differences in bone density, people talk about calcium and vitamin D. Go lift weights. That is the most powerful, that will improve your bone density more than all that other stuff combined. Like lifting weights is, I realize I'm biased on this, but I think lifting weights is probably one of the healthiest things you can do, if not the healthiest. I think um, it's a reasonable bias. I think it's a reasonable bias that would be difficult yeah. to tear down. I don't think there's anything quite like exercise in drug form or any corollary that I can, that I can think of that would mimic the short and long-term effects that exercise gives you. Yeah. And I think more to the point you talked about, like just the, if it was just about like the muscle I gained and the strength I gained, that's great. But like the stuff that exercise taught me in my life, I would never be as successful as I am today. If it wasn't for lifting weights, I would never develop the confidence I have today. If it wasn't for lifting weights like that, being able to struggle, overcome, adapt that gave me the fortitude to try other things that were even harder and then other things and then other things and it just i always tell people if like the only thing you learned from lifting weights was how to grow muscle you weren't you weren't listening for the life lessons that you were missing out on like you weren't listening to the teacher yeah, it's the time um, under tension right like the more time yeah. you spend under tension you're able that bleeds into or, you know, goes into other areas of your For life. Sure. I, I, yeah. No, I think one of the things I was, I was telling somebody about, I've been through different, very hard seasons of my life. And I was talking to a friend who's going through one himself. And I said, try to reframe what you're going through as not, I, I, I hope life will get easier. It might not, but you will get more adapted at carrying the load. 
when I've, you know, I, my best squat ever is 668 pounds. Oh man. But wow. I always thought like, oh, if I squat that much, you know, four or 500 pounds will feel light. Here's the secret. It doesn't feel light. <laughs> it still feels like four or 500 pounds. I'm just better adapted at handling it. Right. Right. So, and again, just those lessons that you, you carry over from lifting weights uh, that you can carry over in your life. So yeah, I, I think if there's, if there's people who are listening, who, you know, are worried about lifting weights because of societal pressures or the word about getting too bulky, one highly unlikely and two, you are missing out on so much. And honestly, it, you don't even have to be like Stephanie and I, where you're doing, you know, you know, an hour or two a day and, you know, four or five days a week, like even 30 to 45 minutes, three times a week will have a huge effect, even without weight loss, will have a huge effect on your health. Holly had posted something, your wife had posted something, um, I can't remember, like a couple of months ago, and I wanted to make sure that we brought it up because sometimes, uh, and it, the post was about, uh, showing up even when you're tired. I can't remember exactly the context, but it, she was reviewing a study about, uh, I think it might've been uh, perceived rate of exertion uh, and training. And it was such a compelling study. And I remember, uh, and you, you mentioned, you know, sometimes I go to the gym and I'm like, I don't want to be here. You know, how do you, what's the secret to staying motivated? I'm, I'm not, <laughs> you know, like, I, and I, I wanted to make sure that we bring this up because I think that there are many days that I don't want to, I'm tired, kids woke me up, whatever, I have a deadline, whatever it is. But I always feel better after I train. Maybe I'm right, like right before my cycle begins, I'm like, okay, I don't have it in me. Like I'm, I'm like a six out of 10, let's say today. Um, but I still go and do it. I always find that when I auto, when I, uh, when I think I'm tired and then I go down to the gym, it's often I'll have a, a new PR. I don't know why, but it's often where I have, and maybe that's a comment on my own perceived, my own auto-regulation. Maybe I'm not really uh, connected as, as well as I should, but I always find that whenever I think I'm tired and I'm like, you know, that little voice is like, I ah, maybe you should just skip today. Whenever I go, I always have, my mood is always better. I'm always better off. I'm never like, God, I should have never went. I think that's the point, right? Like very few people, when you do something that you know is good for you, even if you don't feel like doing it, it actually feels even better when you didn't feel like doing it, but you do it anyway. Like you, you get that, not only do you get the physiological benefit, but you also like, you find out something about yourself Yeah, right? and you walk out feeling good about yourself. I didn't want to do this, but I did it. And I think that goes for, you know, several other things. Obviously you can go down the rabbit hole with this stuff, but you know, when they talk about like you get up in the morning and just, you know, start out and make your bed or, you know, do something that's a net positive, right? It just, you, you feel a little bit better about yourself. And I think the same thing for exercise. Now that's not saying you can never take a day off. Like I auto-regulate where, you know, for example, if, especially now that I'm, you know, 40 years old, I've dealt with several injuries in my powerlifting career. You know, if I just flew on a six hour flight and I got in at, you know, 8 PM and I didn't sleep much the night before, well, maybe now is not the time to go in and try to deadlift. You know what I mean? Like I'll, I'll move that to a different day, but I, I know I'm going to do it on a different day because I know I like, that's part of what I do. Um, 
but it's especially when you're still establishing those habits, it is so important to show up even when you don't want to. Like now, if I miss a workout, I, I don't even worry about it because I know like it wasn't me. I'm going to do it. It just, you know, I'm just going to do it on a different day. But if you're just getting into establishing those habits, it can be so easy to say, well, I'm not feeling it today. I'll do it a different day. But then that starts to compound and then you start to feel worse about yourself. Oh, I don't want to go in. So I think especially when you're in that first you know, few months of establishing those habits, you almost have to force yourself to do it, to just show yourself that you can get through it. And like you said, nobody walks out of the gym going, oh, man, I really hate that I did that. I feel so much worse now. Yeah. So I wanted to just talk a little bit about muscle hypertrophy or physique building, let's say. Uh, sometimes when I say bodybuilding, women are like, what you mean? Like the orange freaks on stage. It's like, no, no, we're talking about building a body. That's what bodybuilding is. Um, what makes, um, what makes an effective, uh, resistance training session with respect to hypertrophy. So we can talk maybe, or maybe you can talk a little bit about, um, sets approaching muscle fatigue, um, mechanical tension, metabolic stress. Like I know that there's a lot in there. And again, this is why I'm like, part two, but I, I want to try to get this in a little bit into this conversation and then maybe we'll, we'll get you back for another one and we can dive a little bit deeper. Yeah. I'll try to make the synopsis as, as quick as I possibly can. But at the end of the day, if you want to create muscle hypertrophy, you have to induce adaptation. Like you have to force your body to adapt. Um, if you like, so when you go into the gym for the first time, an empty bar might be enough to force you to adapt, Right. Over time, your body adapts, and now that empty bar is, is no longer sufficient to force adaptation. So now you've got to add whatever, a five or a 10 on each side, then you can keep doing that over time. We, we know that as progressive overload. But progressive overload isn't just weight on the bar. It's also uh, volume, number of hard sets, um, a few different, you do more reps, you know, those sorts of things. Rest time. Rest time, sure. So we used to have, there's a few things, principles that we know about resistance training. One, rep range doesn't appear to be super important for hypertrophy. You mentioned anywhere between five and 30 reps. I would even argue it's more like two to 30 reps. But uh, there are certain advantages in terms of rep ranges just from a practical perspective. So it's probably not a great idea to be on the, the extreme ends of those rep ranges for a couple of reasons. First one is, it is really difficult to take sets to like 30 reps and close to fatigue. That is very uncomfortable for a lot of people. Most people who are doing high rep stuff are not going anywhere close to fatigue because if they were, you'd have people vomiting all over the place in the gym. Um, it's probably also not a great idea to do, you know, if you're taking two rep sets to fatigue, that is very heavy weight and that is very mentally fatiguing. I'll never forget uh, when my wife first moved over, we were, we were dating. So my wife's Australian. Um, I was getting ready for nationals in 2017 uh, in powerlifting. And I would do like a set of two reps. And then I would like sit down for like 10 minutes. And she'd be like, why are you taking so much? You just did two reps. I'm like, because I'm exhausted. Because that took every amount of like mental focus I had to squat 600 pounds for two reps, you know? Um, and so she actually 
got into powerlifting for a little bit. And she said, she realized, you know, I'd go into the gym and I would slap a plate on each side of the, the bar and I would squat 10 reps and I would get a good sweat. And I'd be like, Oh, that was a hard workout. And I never really pushed myself to understand what fatigue was like, what was failure truly for me. And that was a game changer for her because she was like, Oh, well now I understand why you're resting five, 10 minutes because that was really, really hard. So the, you know, people have said for a long time, you know, okay, hypertrophy is like the rep range between six to 12 reps or, or six to 15 reps or whatever it is. It doesn't matter on a physiological basis. Like we do know that if you get much past 30 reps, it's probably not optimal that it's a lower uh, like stimulation. But on a practical perspective, six to 15 reps is kind of a nice middle ground where you use heavy enough weight to where um, you don't have to do a ton of reps to get close to fatigue and your sets aren't super long, but it's also not so heavy that it's so like psychologically draining. Right. So I do think like that kind of six to 15 rep range can be really useful for people. Now, we also know that it's important to take sets close to fatigue or close to failure in order to maximize muscle growth. You don't have to take it to failure, which failure is defined as at least the way I define it is you could not do another repetition with good form if you tried. The research shows that if you go within a couple reps of failure, like two or three reps of failure, uh, you get basically all the benefits of going to failure, but without so much like psychological and people say central nervous system fatigue, but there's no evidence it really fatigues the central nervous system, but it's probably just like overall uh, fatigue. Uh, so I tell people most of your sets should probably two or three reps shy of failure, right? Like right around that, that spot. Now the problem is people are really terrible, especially beginners and intermediates at knowing how far they are from failure. So uh, in research studies where they take beginners and intermediates and have them estimate their RPE or how, or sorry, repetitions in reserve, which is how many reps somebody thinks they have till failure, they usually underestimate by about five. So if they got to rep eight and said, oh, I, I had my RIR is two, I could have only done 10 reps. On average, when the researchers push them to go all the way to failure, they get 13, right? So People are sorry. No, they get 15, 15, yeah, yeah. 15. So people are really poor estimators of their, of how many reps they have until they have trained to failure. So what I'll say is you don't have to train to failure. I do think training to failure for periods of time or, you know, at different times can be helpful. So you actually understand what that feels like. What does that sensation feel like? I would say for me, I can estimate within one or two reps of failure very, very accurately, even at lower loads. Um, so that's part of it. We also know that you kind of max out your hypertrophy response around six to 10 sets for a muscle group in a session. Um, and per then week? Did you say per week or per session? Per session. Per session. Um, mm -hmm. So that you don't really get much of a synthetic response over that. And actually what's interesting is... If you rest longer between sets, you actually need less sets to maximize hypertrophy. So there was a, a meta regression that was done that showed if you rest, I think it was more than three minutes, that six sets will maximize hypertrophy. But if you rest less than a minute, it takes about 10 sets. So that's not saying you can't rest 
short. It just means that if you're going to rest less between sets, you're going to need a few more sets. And that's probably because your performance just starts decreasing between each sets. Cause you can't give, if you're only resting less than a minute, you're really not giving it your, all you've got. So um, what I'll tell people is the tenets that you really want to focus on is, you know, getting enough volume in, but don't go crazy. Like just because you, you know that six sets per body part will maximize hypertrophy or 10 sets per body part uh, in a session. That doesn't mean you should be doing six sets for every body part three times a week. Like that's going to be a, an enormous amount of training volume. And to be honest, if you're a beginner or intermediate, you just don't need that much. You know, I would recommend increasing your set number incrementally. Like if you're, if you're getting stronger, you're doing more reps, um, you're seeing changes in your physique and you're only doing like, you know, four or five sets per week for a body part, wait till you plateau and then add, you know, 15% or 20% more volume and then help you get over that plateau. Um, in terms of frequency, so like how many times a week to train a body part? For upper body, there was a meta-analysis done on this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you what the meta-analysis said, then I'm going to tell you my personal opinion. Um, it said for upper body, two times a week is better than one. For lower body, there was a trend for two times a week to be better, but it wasn't statistically significant. I think that training a body part multiple times a week makes a lot of sense, um, just as a way to distribute volume for one. And two, because we do know that there appears to be a within session cap to the anabolic response. So it would make sense to at least spread that out over, you know, two or three sessions a week for a body part. So those are kind of the tenants I start people with, but obviously like depending on, you know, if somebody's beginner, intermediate, advanced, you know, when I got up there in volume for, you know, trying to get my squat to like a world record level, you know, there were periods of time where I was squatting four times a week uh, for, for a lot of sets. <laughs> so I, I think for the average person, you know, two times a week is probably great, but as you start getting more advanced, you may need more than that. Wonderful. Lane, we didn't get to everything, but that's okay. Uh, I wanted to, uh, yeah, we'll do, we'll do again. We'll do a part two. Uh, tell people where, um, they can find you. I know you have an app. I've used it. I love that you ask in the, in the carbon diet code and you can plug it and everything, but you ask where you, are you close to your menstrual cycle? It's like, finally, there's a cat, there's an app that's, that's, that's considering, you know, maybe where we are in our cycle as women. So talk about uh, your app, your supplement line, and if people can work with you or coaches or how they can find out more about you. Yeah. So the way I describe people ask what I do, I'm like, we do everything in the fitness industry. So uh, you mentioned, I have a few books um, for people who are looking for long-term weight loss. I really would recommend my book fat loss forever uh, without tooting my own horn. I really do think it's a fantastic resource. Uh, I even think it should be uh, mandatory reading material at some like uh, registered dietitian courses. Um, so that's, that's my, our books are, are great options. Uh, but you can find everything I do at biolane.com. So just my, my you know, biolane.com. And then I'm biolane on most social media. And like you said, we have a nutrition coaching app, Carbon Diet Coach. It's $10 a month. So if you need some support, like in terms of you don't really know where to get started, you don't know how much protein, carbohydrate, and fat to eat, this will do that. It will also adjust your macros, you know, based on how you're progressing so that you're not dealing with plateaus. It'll get you over those plateaus. Uh, and we don't just do weight loss. It'll do muscle gain, reverse dieting, maintenance. So it's not just a weight loss app. And then we have 
we do, uh, my wife and I do take on very minimal amount of clients. I think right now I'm not taking on any this month, but usually I take on one or two per month and she's about the same, although she's not taking on any for the next few months. Uh, but we do have a coaching team, Team BioLane, which is a group of eight coaches that we've kind of handpicked and we've also you know trained to basically convey our methods to clients. And they have, um, like we have just been so impressed with our team in, in terms of the feedback they've had from clients um, and, and just the, the results that they've had. So we're really happy. We just actually had an event last weekend where we had all, all of our coaches flew in from like, even like our, we have a coach in Ecuador. We have one, two from Australia. They all flew in we had a great time. They're just great people. Um, so that we have our, our nutrition supplement line, Outwork Nutrition. Um, so again, very like evidence-based, no crazy claims, you know, whatever. People say, what supplements do I need? And I'll say, as a guy who sells supplements, I'm telling you, you don't need any, but here are some things that are helpful. Um, and then I also have uh, courses that are focused uh, for coaches. Um, so if you're looking to upskill, uh, I offer those courses. You can find those on, uh, on my website as well uh, or on my partner's website, cleanhealth.com. Or sorry, cleanhealth.edu.au. So they're an Australian company, but they uh, convey my courses and they're excellent. Um, so again, we, we kind of do a little bit of everything in the fitness industry, but uh, at the end of the day, we're just really trying to, to help as many people as we possibly can. Well, I will make sure that all of these are in the show notes as clickable links for uh, our, we have a lot of practitioners that listen to the show, a lot of women uh, as well. So I know that this can be really useful for people. It was just a delight talking to you today, Lane. It's been wonderful to meet you. I'm so glad that you accepted my invitation to come on the show and uh, looking forward to the next one. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. All right. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and I must give you the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer here. This podcast, Better with Dr. Stephanie, is for general information only and the advice, recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship that has been formed and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. In other words, guys, be smart about this. Take it with a grain of salt. Take this information to your primary healthcare provider and have a discussion with him or her to make the best choice that is for you. Remember, I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. And these conversations are meant for educational purposes only. 